Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to pick up our study in verse 19. As you're turning there, just a couple of uh, preliminary thoughts. First of all, if you're a guest or if you've been away for a while and you've kind of dropped in the middle of this series, don't be alarmed. There's a lot that took us to get here and there's a lot that's coming after this. So you may hear things today and think, what in the world is this church talking about? We're just taking the next passage as we study through God's precious word. And what it says in this section is alarming to some, but very, very clear. I also want to tell you this, that you'll notice that, I don't know if it says so uh, on the slide, this is part one. I knew very early on, uh, weeks ago, and especially this week, studying this passage, that this would not be a one-parter. I'm not sure it's going to be a two-parter, but it's going to take us some time to work through this passage, which in some senses is one of the most controversial in the entire Bible. But I think as you look at it carefully, you're going to see that it's very simple in what it's teaching. We want to take our time going through this. If we rush through it and get the wrong impression, it could have tragic theological consequences. You'll know uh, the, the gravity of this passage as we read it to set it in our mind. Romans chapter 9, follow along as I begin reading in verse 19. You will say to me then, now let's stop right there. What has been said is that God gives compassion to some, but not all. And also, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Paul says... You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or... Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. And even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he also said in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved or my beloved. And it shall be that In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Let's begin with a a question. What do you think the most serious mistake you can make in your theology would be? If I were to ask you what would be the worst mistake you could make thinking theologically, I wonder how you would answer that 
question. Another way to ask it is this. What mistake are you ever in danger of when thinking about God? There is an ever-present danger resident in all of us, even as believers, in thinking theologically and thinking accurately about God. Interestingly, God identified this mistaken notion in the nation of Israel in Psalm 50. After confronting the people's sin and confronting their hypocrisy specifically, God confronts the mistaken notion that he would just give them a pass. He would just overlook their transgressions. He would give them another chance. He would turn a blind eye and look the other way. And that's what they thought God would do. Listen to this stinging confrontation that God gives the nation of Israel about the wrong presumptuous thoughts theologically about his character. He said this, Psalm 50 verse 21. These things I have done, you have done rather, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. Then he says, I will reprove you and state the case, give you truth in order, in order rather, in linkage before your eyes. God says, your problem, Israel, was you thought I was like you. And when you think that I think like you do, and when you think I act like you do, and when you think I respond like you do, you have a problem because we are fundamentally different, God says, between people and himself. I think the idea that God is just like us, that he thinks and reasons and acts and reacts like us, is at the heart of the objections and the problem that's raised in Romans 9. If you walk into 9 having, what Romans 9, having expectations that God is going to think like you and I think, you're going to have trouble. You're going to struggle. I know that because I walk into Romans 9 thinking, how can God think so differently and act so differently than I do? Paul is laying out the case just as God said to Israel, let me lay out my case before you to tell you I'm so different than you are. Paul is laying out the case that God is sovereign in election in choosing some and not all. He's primarily speaking about the fact, by the way, that some Jews were chosen and some Jews were not chosen. Now, I bring that up because it's important. Some people think that this whole passage has nothing to do with individual salvation. It only has to do with the, with the Jews, the chosen and the non-elect Jews. Well, let me just say, first of all, that that doesn't get God off the hook. If God chose some of the Jews but not all of the Jews, he's still a chooser, is he not? It's still his character, Furthermore, this is the conclusion to the argument that he began back in Romans 8, 29, and 30, where he's talking about foreknowledge, predestination, and election. So this is in the context of him talking about this. So he's obviously talking, yes, about the nation of Israel, but also about people individually. The principle of God's sovereignty goes at the heart of this, of this chapter because it goes at the heart of God personally and God's character and God's attributes. However, God does not expect us to just think his thoughts without having them explained to us, which is exactly what Paul does in Romans 9, 10, and 11, looking at the Jews, which 
He's already said earlier in the chapter, not all Israel is Israel, which means not everyone who's ethnically related to Abraham as a Jew is spiritually related to God as a believer. Study the Old Testament and you'll find that there were unbelieving Jews. Just read the story of Jezebel or Ahab. There were unbelieving Jews and there were believing Gentiles. The issue has always been that of faith. In Romans 4, Paul says, remember, Abraham actually became a believer before he was Jewish, before he was circumcised. He was just someone that God chose. This doctrine goes at the very heart of God's character, what God is like, what God does, who God is. And the study of God's sovereignty in salvation is critically important. Very important. You say, well, why, why is this important? Martin Luther helps us with this. This is an extended quote. This is a great paragraph in which he says this. Therefore, it is not irreverent, inquisitive, or trivial, but rather helpful and necessary for a Christian to find out whether the will, how a person acts, does anything or nothing in matters pertaining to eternal salvation. In other words, we should know what part we play. He's going to go on to explain that. If we do not know these things, we shall know nothing at all of things Christian and shall be worse than any heathen. Therefore, let anyone who does not feel this confess that he's no, no Christian at all. For if I am ignorant of what, how far, and how much I can and I may do in relation to God, it will be equally uncertain and unknown to me what, how far, and how much God can and may do in me. But when the works and power of God are unknown in this way, I cannot worship, praise, thank, and serve God, since I do not know how much I ought to attribute to myself and how much to God. It therefore behooves us to be very certain about the distinction between God's power and our own, God's work and our own, if we want to live a godly life, end quote. Luther is saying, if you don't really understand the nuances, if you haven't drunk deep from that deep well of God's sovereignty of salvation, you lack in the ability to worship the greatness of God. Believing that God is sovereign in salvation brings a unique humility to a, a person's heart that no other doctrine can. Because you come up against the sovereignty of God and you really understand, I, I am a dead man spiritually who if raised from the dead spiritually by faith, only God can give me that belief. And we're beholden to him. Make no mistake, the determiner and the focus and the hero of those who hold to this thing called free will, their hero, their determiner, and their focus in that theological scheme is themselves. It's, it's, it's man. But Romans 9 is going to teach us that the determiner and focus and hero for those who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation is God. And as we continue in this study of of Romans 9, I am more and more convinced that to deny God's sovereign choice in salvation is not only to disregard the clear teaching of Scripture, let me say it as gently as possible, it is an absolute 
all-out assault on God's character. To deny that he is sovereign in salvation is to make the God of Romans 9 non-existent. It's to say that Paul was unclear and God has a locution issue. He can't say what he means. This is exactly what Paul addresses in this chapter. And the fact that to deny it is an assault on God's character is exactly how Paul assesses assesses any such disagreement to God in his sovereignty and salvation. He boils boils it down to this. If you have issues with God being sovereign in salvation, you don't have an issue with what he does. You have an issue with him himself. Now, in order to understand this, we need to get a running start. And I have to tell you this because I'm already a little bit ahead on the next few weeks. What I'm about to do is give you a review and, and, and to get us into the passage that we're landing in today, but you will hear this review again next week and the next, and maybe the next few. This is kind of like an algebra problem, and you can't look at the, did you, you remember those algebra problems that our wonderful algebra teachers gave us that would take a whole page? Which I never understood because they give us the answer in the, in the back of the book anyway. Why, why do I need to do this? The answer, someone's already done this. Anyway, it takes a whole page and you have to show your work. But if you were to look midway down the page or at the end of the page and try to understand any of that without what came before, you'd be in trouble, right? At least those who know math tell me that. It's building into a solution. Paul is building an argument. He's solving a problem. He's building into a building of our mind and our understanding. So we have to get a running start, and we're going to have to for the next few weeks. So this review will come back, and hopefully you can kind of, if not memorize it, have it enough in your mind that you can walk through Romans 9 and understand the, the flow of the argument. He begins in the chapter by, in chapter, one, chapter 9, verse 1, by telling his brethren, the Jews, that he wishes he could even leave his salvation apart from Christ if they would be converted. That's a significant place to start because Paul is telling us, I, I care about souls. I don't believe in a, in a God who is just precariously throwing out salvation to one and not another without any thought or love or condescending care. He has a passion for those who don't know Christ. Then he rehearses the blessings of the Jews in in verses 2 through 5 and the incredible reality that this group of Jews who were so blessed, they had the law, they had the promises, they had the fathers, they had so many gifts, they rejected the one who was promised. They rejected the Messiah, they rejected Jesus. That's climaxed in verse 5 where he says, from whom, from the Jews, from whom is the Christ. It's incredible. That sets up the question as to whether or not God's word in verse 6 and following has failed. Hang on. If God promised to give a Messiah to a promised group of people, the promised people of the Jews, and yet when the Messiah came, they rejected him by and large wholesale. Yes, there were redeemed Jews and saved Jews then as there are now. But as a nation rejected their king and the Messiah, did did God's word fail? Has he blown it? Was there a miscarriage of prophecy? He says, may it never be. And then he explains to us, because not all Israel is truly Israel. As I said, just being related to Abraham genealogically by DNA, just having Jewish blood in your veins doesn't make you any more of a believer than being a pagan. He says, it's by grace through faith, then, now, always. 
not all Israel who were genetically Israel were Israel by belief, by faith. Since Jesus is the promised Messiah and the people of promise would receive that Messiah, has God's word failed because they rejected him? No. Then comes the evidence and the fulfillments of God's promises that are not always according to human wisdom. And this is where we begin seeing what what God said to those Jews in Psalm 50. My ways are not your ways. Don't think I'm like you. Your problem is you you think I think and you think I'm just like you. Because the the law of the progenitor, which means your inheritance goes to the firstborn, the blessing goes to the firstborn, was totally bypassed by God. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Why? Because he was the child of the promise. Ishmael was born first to Hagar as a concoction of Sarah to try to get a, a child of promise since she was old and hadn't had a child yet. Remember the story? God says, no, 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 I, I, I'm going to fulfill this. So Isaac is born, and he becomes the child of promise. If that wasn't enough, the next generation, he chooses Jacob, who is second born, over Esau, the other twin, who was born first. And if that's not enough, Paul goes on to say he made the choice to love Jacob and hate Esau, and he gives two qualifiers, before they were born, while they were yet in their mother's womb, and secondly, before they had done anything, good or evil, right or wrong. Meaning he had done this entirely according to his choice, not as a response to their lives, not as a response to their decision, not as a response to their free will, which doesn't exist. God chose differently than man would have chosen. And Paul makes this astonishing point. I chose Jacob. I didn't choose Esau because I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. This raises the first question that Paul understands we would have. Now, for those who would say, listen, Paul isn't really teaching the sovereignty of God in salvation. The problem is, if he wasn't teaching that, he wouldn't raise the objections to that that he does, that that we would ask. First question is, hang on, is that fair? Is that fair for him to choose one and not the other? Which is really the, 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 the immature question. The more mature question is, is it just? We all ask, is it fair? It's, it's, it's not a matter of fairness. God is not fair. And we should be eternal, eternally grateful that he's not. Fair is giving someone what they deserve. If, if God gave us what we deserve, we would be in a Christless eternity. God is not fair. He is righteous and compassionate and gracious and merciful And what Paul says here, and just, he does what's right. Genesis says, does not the judge of the earth do justly or righteously? Then he gives his first answer. And this is where we have to swallow hard. Because it's not really an answer. You say, why would God choose some and not all? He says, quoting Exodus 33, 19, because I will have compassion on the one I have compassion. And I will be 
gracious and merciful on the one who I give mercy. You say, that's not an answer. You're, you're exactly right. He doesn't give us an answer. He actually goes further than giving us an answer. He says, well, it's not only that God gives compassion and mercy on who he will. The other side is also true. He also hardens the heart of some, and he gives the example of Pharaoh. Now, we looked last week at all those texts where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and those are both true. They both coexist. But here, it's clear that God is the one in verse 20 who hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Excuse me, I think I said verse 20, it's verse 18. He hardens whom he desires. That's kind of the end of the argument. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. God makes these decisions. Now, Paul, in saying this, raises even a deeper issue and a deeper question. Hang on. If God hardens some and softens others, how can he find any fault in anyone who's hard? That's a good question, which is exactly the question Paul raises in verse 19. He not only asks the question for us and the readers, he now turns to defend God's character as sovereign in election, sovereign in predestination, sovereign in effectual calling, sovereign in foreknowledge, and sovereign in his own choice. So as Paul answers this question, he really doesn't say, I'm going to give you a theological scheme to think in. What he does is he defends God's character because he understands to reject this doctrine is to reject God, to reject his character, to reject what he's like, is to think you can't do that and be like that because you're not like I am and not doing what I would do. So let's break it down and we'll look at it like this. Three attributes of God that defend his sovereignty in salvation. Three attributes of God that defend his sovereignty in salvation. Paul understands it's the character of God that's at stake here. It's the character of God then that we will need to be understood and defended. Now, you see that we're looking at three attributes. We're only going to get through the first one today. So just if we get... A little further along and you say, he's not going to get to the second one. You're right. We're only going to get to the first one. Number one, God's righteous right. That's the first attribute. God's righteous right. His right or rights. Paul says, you will say to me then. This is interesting. He personalizes it. He said over and over in Romans, well, you might say, you would say, you would ask. Now he says, you would say to me. He understands that they have isolated, laser focused with fire coming out of their souls. What are you saying, Paul? Can you really say this about God? You will say then to me, and then he voices the question that's in all of our hearts. Hang on. If God hardens some and softens others, why does God still find fault? 
You can say if or for. Who resists his will? If God's the one who hardens and God's the one who softens, how can anyone be held responsible? Isn't that the ultimate question in looking at God's sovereignty and salvation? It's the genius of the Holy Spirit to do this, to say this. And for those who don't believe Paul has taught that God hardens and softens, why in the world would he even frame this question if that wasn't what he had just taught? If God hardens some and softens others' hearts, how can he find fault in anyone, especially when no one can resist his will? The premise of the question is important. I have well-meaning friends who try to get God off the hook by saying something like, something like this. I know this text sounds like God is the one who hardens and softens. I know that that sounds like that, but that's not what it means I know it sounds like God is sovereign. sounds like God chooses some in salvation. sounds like he doesn't choose all in salvation. But that's not what it really means. Well, here's the point. Paul understood that you thought that's what he meant. <laughs> he could have been clearer. I'm sure he had lots of scroll paper. He could have rewritten this. He understood exactly what he had just taught. He understood exactly what he meant. He understood exactly what we think he means. That's why he raises this question. At the heart of this position is trying to protect, I think, God's reputation. I think people who struggle with this try to keep him from looking like he plays favorites, trying to keep him from looking like he makes salvation just for some and not all, trying to... Give everyone the same opportunity to be saved, trying to make sure that he has free will preserved in the mind and heart of every person on the planet. I understand people who want to protect those notions, but that's not what this text does, and that's not where Paul goes. This position simply does not believe that Paul or anyone else in Scripture could or would possibly teach that God chooses some and not all. Or some and not others. And even if that sounds like that's what's being said, there must be some other explanation for what Paul is saying. That can't be the case. Paul understands exactly what he's saying. That's why he frames this question. He wouldn't ask this question if he hadn't taught what he just taught. The fact that he understands the objection should inform us that he has indeed taught what it sounds like he's teaching. And as I've said, this... This is a part of Paul's argument. He's going to continue all the way through the end of chapter 11. It's just a piece of a bigger bigger picture on a puzzle. And you have to keep the argument in mind. Robert Mounts, the Greek scholar, says this, so simply in these words, quote, to fault God for showing mercy to some while hardening others is to require that God conforms to our feeble and arbitrary concept of justice, end quote. Can I say that again? To fault God, Robert Mounts says, to fault God for showing mercy to some while hardening others is to require that God conforms to our feeble and arbitrary concept of justice. In order to show that God doesn't conform to anyone except his own will, Paul reaches back for an illustration. 
Now, if you'll notice, he starts talking about a potter and clay. Before we jump into Romans 9 and the potter and the clay, you have to understand that this was not original with Paul. Paul is quoting Isaiah here, and he's not even quote, not only quoting, he's summarizing. He's grabbing the nuance and the teaching of Isaiah. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says this, verses 6 to 8, actually. For all of us like have become like one who is unclean. He, he's going to use this graphic language. It is, it's more graphic than I even like to talk about. All of us have become like one who is unclean, a, a leper, one who's, who can't even be in the same room as someone who's clean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The Hebrew word there is menstrual cloths. That's the best we offer. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us, we wither like a leaf, we're dying. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Last weekend, my boys and I made the mistake of raking our yard before our neighbor did. And the next day, we did this on Friday and woke up Saturday. It looked like we had done nothing. That's the point he's making here. You throw a leaf to the wind, it goes wherever. Our iniquities are like the wind. They take us away. They're just uncontrollable. Then he says, there is no one who calls on your name. Listen to that announcement and pronouncement of of depravity and, and everyone being spiritually dead. There is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and delivered us into the power of our iniquities. There is the statement of all statements about depravity. We were born with a stiff arm in God's face. We were born inclining ourselves towards sin. We were born without any desire to pursue God. But now, verse 8 says of Isaiah 64, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. What do you attribute that to, Isaiah? We are the clay, and you are the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Don't miss the context here. It's that of people being sinful and unclean. The point is that it is unthinkable that the clay would ever raise a protest against the potter for what he's done. We have nothing and you've made us into your children. How can we ever cause any objection It's not the only place that Paul reaches back to in Isaiah. Isaiah 29, verse 16. You turn things around. Shall the potter? He says, you you got got opposite. This is where we land in Romans 9 as well. You, You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. He goes on in Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one, and this is where I think Paul is reaching for specifically. Woe, cursed, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. You say, what kind of maker? Is this talking about the general creator of the earth? Listen to the illustration. 
an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. That's the scripture that Paul understands when he drops into his, with his quill in writing in Romans 9. And it says, on the contrary, verse 20, You want to ask the question, can God find any fault with anyone since he chose some and didn't choose all? Or chose some and didn't choose others? He says, who are you, O man, who quarrels or answers back to God? It's Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Paul can hear us. Paul can hear you. We're saying, but, wait, 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 but, Paul, wait, wait. And before we can give our question of objection, he says, be careful. Who are you who answers back to God? And he picks up the illustration. The thing molded, the vessel, the vase will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? It's inanimate. It can't speak. That's the illustration. And then comes our word. Or does not the potter have a, what's the word? Right. It's a righteous right over the clay. To make from the same lump, the same clay, one vase or cup for honorable use and another for common use. We're going to talk about this honorable and dishonorable use more in the coming weeks. Here's the critical question. Are we really challenging God on this issue? Now now listen, I, I, I hope I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but I have questions. I do too. I have a lot of questions, lots of questions. It's okay to ask the question. It's okay to wonder how this works out. It's not okay to demand from God that he gives us an answer that satisfies our intellectual curiosities. We have lots of questions about this doctrine, but we can't demand that God answers all of our our questions. And I think specifically, he's not talking about someone, I hope, like you, who has legitimate questions like, wow, this is is heavy. How how does this work out? that's That's okay. He's talking to the one who actually raises his spiritual fist at God and says, you are not sovereign in salvation. You do not choose some and not others. This is not the way it works out. It's an assault on God's righteous right to reject this doctrine. It's not my words. That's exactly what Paul says. the subjector to whom Paul writes, God as creator has the sovereign right to make some vessels for honor, that's salvation, and others for dishonor, that's destruction, which we'll see in verse 21. But let's look at our starting point. You know, I was really helped reading William Hendrickson, an excellent commentator on Romans. In his fine commentary on Romans, Hendrickson says this, 
If a potter, if even a potter has the right out of the same lump or mass of clay to make one cup or vessel for honor and another for dishonor, then certainly God, our maker, has the right out of the same mass of humanity who by their guilt have plunged themselves into the pit of misery to elect some to everlasting life and to allow others to remain in the abyss of wretchedness, end quote. I think we think sometimes, and this is where we think God is like us. We, we do ourselves a disservice. We think, you know, here's God, and he's looking at, at all these people who are, who are sitting in a position of neutral. And they're thinking, hmm, God or Satan, good or evil, right or wrong. And, they're, they're, and God's saying, please choose me. And the, and the, the devil's saying, please choose me. And, and, and their free will somehow gives them that opportunity. That's, that's not the position. That's, it's called Thomistic. Thomas Aquinas believed in the neutrality of man, that man was depraved except for elements of his mind and could make these decisions. That's not the case. We're not born neutral, choosing one way or the other. We're born in sin. We're born as rebels to God. We used this illustration a few weeks ago. Let me go back to it. It's like walking into a prison where all of us are there and we are guilty of unspeakable crimes. We're all guilty. All of us deserve to be there. And if God chooses to rescue some out of that prison, that doesn't make the sentence on the rest of us any less deserved. You say, why? Why? I can't fully answer that this week, but we can read ahead because in verses 22 and 23, he tells us why, and it might not answer all of your curiosities. You know why? He chose some for wrath and some for salvation to glorify himself. And specifically for those of us who've been given salvation to look at at the fact that we were chosen and not chosen or hardened for wrath and to forever unspeakably praise God. But that's for next week. Listen again to some helpful words from Dr. Mounts. He says this. Because if you're like me, I know know the struggle. I feel it in my own heart. He says this. Human logic cannot harmonize divine sovereignty and human freedom. We looked at this last week. Human logic cannot harmonize divine sovereignty and human freedom, but both are equally taught in Scripture. Neither should it be adjusted, neither should be, neither doctrine should be adjusted to fit the parameters of the other. You don't sacrifice the sovereignty of God so that you can work in human responsibility. And you don't sacrifice human responsibility for what you understand about the sovereignty of God. They both can't push each other out of the way. They form an antinomy that by definition eludes our best attempts at explanation. End quote. So let's leave off where we began. Do you think God 
ought to be like you. Do you think the way we would work out salvation and choosing and not choosing and, and election and predestination and form, do you think that that ought to work out like you and I think? God says, I'm not like you. John tells us in John 1, I want to show you a couple of parallels here if I can. Listen to this. John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who, here it is, who do what? Who believe in his name. You say, believe. It's our responsibility. Next verse. Who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh, not our own decision, but of the will of God. Now I want you to see this with your eyes. Turn to Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, this is where we have to land in looking at this Difficult doctrine. Remember, God is the same God of the Old Testament as the New. God is the same in every epoch of history. He says, the one who chooses and the one who hardens. Remember that? Remember remember that God? He says, through Isaiah, seek the Lord, verse 6, Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He doesn't say, okay, I want you to see if you're chosen. See if you know the secret predestination handshake. See if you've been elect. He doesn't say that. He says simply, seek the Lord. Seek him now. But he also says this, seek him while he may be found, intimating there is a time when God's patience runs out with every individual. There's a time when he may not be found, in other words, Call upon him while he is near, which means this. If you're under conviction about your sin before the Lord, repent then, not later. Spurgeon says it so well. Tomorrow is the devil's day. How do you do that? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Nothing about make sure you're chosen. Repent. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord And here's that compassion that only God gives from his own prerogative. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick, I don't get this. He chooses some, he doesn't choose others. He hardens some, he softens others. We're supposed to believe, and yet only he is the one who can cause us to believe. That's beyond me. Well, look at how Isaiah concludes this issue. He quotes God by saying, for my thoughts, well, they're not your thoughts, nor are your ways the way you think. They're they're not my ways. Look at this explanation as God says it, for as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Don't try to fit this doctrine between your ears. It won't fit. He doesn't say the command in Romans 9 is make sure you figure it out. The command is don't question God. 
Where do you end on this? How do you pull this together? I don't think you pull it together by saying Paul was a Calvinist. I think that's a statement like that is such a disservice to the Holy Spirit who wrote through Paul. Calvin comes a long time later. What we do is we say, I can't believe that I believe, which is proof that God chose me. The question isn't figure out if you're chosen. The question is, will you believe? To as many as believed, he gave the right to become his children. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and you'll find the compassion that only God gives out of his prerogative. I love the parallels. And they won't all reconcile in your mind. Is man responsible for all of his choice? Absolutely. Is God alone responsible for everyone who will believe? Absolutely. And that's as far as I can take you. Let's pray. While your heads are bowed, if, if you just listen to this and you think, what in the world? I, I do too. I, I understand. But this is what God's word says. This is what the Bible says clearly. And it's what we want to understand insofar as we can and accept when we can't. The command is to seek the Lord, is to believe on Jesus Christ who who is God, a very God, who became a man, who lived without sin, without blemish, without any unrighteousness, who lived the life that only God will accept, a life that God will accept, the only kind of life he will accept, a perfect life. And he promises to give that to our credit if we will believe and to take our sin on his own son at the cross and to rise from the grave and give us hope for eternity. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while, while he's near, please. The response to this is not see if you can figure it out. The response to this is to say in absolute humility, what a God what a God. Our prayer room is open to my right, the Oaks Lord over here. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, answer some questions, and maybe just say, I don't know with you. We're okay to do that as well. But let us share any burden that you might have. Father, please, please, by the work of your Spirit, give us faith to believe the unbelievable, faith to believe the inexplicable, Protect us from thinking that you're like us and protect us from forcing you to answer our questions. Humble us, Father. Humble us by the gift of your grace and mercy so that we can give you the glory that you deserve for being gracious and being merciful. We pray this because of the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, amen.